when human civilization embraced uh, technology to um, uh, start on the path where we are today, one of the most fundamental contributing factors was the uh, invention of agriculture that uh, more or less 10,000 years ago uh, switched our ability uh, to uh, build and control and use and reuse uh, calories uh, in a given area uh, of, of, of land and put us on a trajectory that we are still following of uh, exponential growth, uh, both of uh, population as well as the calories that are needed to support that population. My name is David Orban, and uh, this is the um, uh, What is the Question, the Searching for the Question podcast, and uh, my co-host is uh, Hannes uh, Sjoblad. Welcome, Hannes. Hi, David. It's wonderful to be with you today. We are going to talk about food. Uh, food and water, and what uh, technology can do in order to um, support, but even let uh, thrive populations of eight, nine, maybe 10 billion people uh, on the planet and beyond. How can technology help not only sustain, but uh, provide uh, incredibly nutritious, healthy, and, and exciting uh, food experiences to uh, all of those people. I think it's fantastic, David. There are so many food podcasts out there, but this one will be a little bit different because we will not be talking about how to cook lovely food or um, different recipes and how things taste, but we will be focusing on the network society and the technology dimensions of food. Uh, the great thing with food, and I uh, love to have conversations on food, and I do quite a few talks on food tech, is that everyone has a very deeply emotional relationship to food. And so it's, it's nice for once to speak of technology that everyone can have a strong view on and have uh, can contribute to the conversation on uh, with, uh, with their fundamentally held views. Um, so, uh, if we if we start with that flying question, what does the food tech industry mean to you in relation to the network society? Uh, our fundamental thesis is that uh, technology, uh, at any uh, given point in in history, actually gives rise to a, a certain type of, of society that in turn adopts uh, the political structure um, that uh, this uh, society expresses. So with regards to food and, and, and water, uh, the question is, what is the current level of technology and what changes the coming technologies are going to allow? A consequence uh, that is, again, part of our fundamental thesis of the current wave of technologies is that these will lead not only to address our challenges uh, in a manner that will uh, be positive for humanity as a whole, but it will lead to decentralization rather than centralized and hierarchical solutions that we have seen in the past. 
the current and coming wave of technologies will allow a more robust a more sustainable and more decentralized organization to emerge. So just uh, very quickly, uh, uh, maybe a couple of examples of uh, what I believe is going to be unavoidably part of, uh, uh, of the food equation in the future is uh, hydroponics and aeroponics. On one hand, the ability to grow food uh, with uh, vastly uh, fewer resources in, uh, uh, in terms of soil and, uh, and energy and water. And um, um, uh, the um, availability of uh, uh, cultivated meat, uh, synthetic meat, 3D printed meat, uh, whatever you want to call it. So these are a couple of examples that we can look at uh, in a little more detail. And I'm sure you also have examples that you want to cover. I have a lot. And I, I think that the ones you mentioned are indeed... Uh, interesting transformative technologies, although uh, if we compare them in scale to our current food production systems, it's of course diminutive still. We are still very much uh, an agricultural based society. Uh, yes, we have factory farms for animals, etc. But the entire uh, human food supply system is, is uh, ultimately based on uh, farms and fields. But it's, it will be interesting to explore a few dimensions of it. But I would love to bring up my uh, one of my favorite uh, examples in the story of agriculture, David. And I would like to ask you, what in your eyes is the most important invention that was made in the 20th century? Um, I believe it is certainly synthetic fertilizers. Uh, that uh, allowed um, us uh, to uh, put on an industrial scale uh, our ability to grow uh, calories from uh, um, uh, vegetable uh, origins in farming, uh, decoupling it from uh, bird shit, which was originally uh, the source of, of the fertilizer. So if I can outline the case, because I think it's a beautiful case of... Uh, Technology history. It's the the German chemist uh, Haber who who discovered uh, a process for extracting nitrogen from the air, and uh, up to uh, the beginning of the 20th century, nitrogen for synthetic fertilizer was exactly as you say something that was dug out of the ground, typically from uh, islands uh, where uh, there was uh, millennia of bird uh, uh, leftovers. And uh, Chile uh, was the biggest exporter of um, uh, mined nitrogen a uh, hundred uh, some years ago. Um, however, with the invention of the Haber-Bosch process, so Franz Haber was the inventor who, through pressure and heat, managed to extract ammonia out of uh, the air. And then uh, the industrial uh, industrialist uh, Bosch, who made it into an enormous industrial process, and allowed us to produce these enormous amounts of uh, artificial fertilizer. Yes, that, in my view, is also without doubt the biggest technological invention of the uh, 20th century, because ultimately, if that process had not been invented, most likely there would be about 3 billion fewer people alive on the planet right now. And as I love to point out when I stand in front of an audience, is that 
hey guys, did you know that approximately 80 to 90% of all the nitrogen molecules that constitute your bodies have gone through the Haber-Bosch process? So we would physically not exist in the, in, the, in the forms we are if it wasn't for this very interesting breakthrough. And we will come back to this example a little bit later in our conversation because the idea of extracting a wonderful resource from air is quite mind-blowing and it must have been uh, that to the people who were you know stuck with the idea that fertilizer was something that you would dig out of the ground um, technology makes uh, uh, resources that used to be scarce uh, abundant and of course uh, a lot of people like to point out that technology also creates new problems one of the challenges today is to improve or transform uh, the process of creating artificial fertilizers so that it doesn't depend on fossil uh, fuel uh, source uh, energy anymore. Um, and that, uh, as a consequence, the whole process can be uh, such that, that it doesn't contribute to uh, um, CO2 emissions uh, in, the, in the atmosphere. And uh, uh, once we are able to do that, uh, which is going to um, require um, the use of solar energy and innovative industrial processes, um, I, I think it will be very, uh, very interesting because it will come simultaneously with other, other innovations as well. And uh, decarbonizing uh, uh, our uh, food production process, the industrial part of the food production process is going to be quite, uh, quite uh, fundamental. It's interesting when you bring up the term decarbonization. Uh, if we look at, for example, the planetary status reports from Stockholm Resilience Center and other research institutes, um, yes, we are uh, having increasingly higher amounts of uh, carbon dioxide in the air, but in fact, the nitrogen cycle on the planet is in a lot worse shape than the carbon dioxide cycle. And the fact that uh, the, the coral reefs are dying and that we have ocean uh, ocean floors that are dying is very much a factor of the nitrogen cycle being absolutely overwhelmed with the application of industrial farming. So yes, we also need to break that part. This is an unhealthy state of affairs that we have, that we're over-fertilizing so many fields in order to feed the global population. Yeah, eutrophization uh, of uh, of uh, water supplies uh, leading to uh, algae blooms uh, of uh, all kinds uh, is uh, is one of uh, the reasons for this uh, change and optimizing uh, our uh, control of how fertilizer is applied and and, and used by the plants uh, is uh, going to be not only necessary in order to uh, avoid the runoffs. Uh, that are now um, creating this uh, damage. Uh, but actually, the positive outcome is going to be that we are going to be able to apply much more precise quantities when they are needed, where they are needed, rather than just blanket uh, covering uh, everything like we are doing today. Similarly to how applying pesticides uh, uh, a critically uh, just blanketing everything is not uh, the most efficient way to do uh, and 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 we are learning through precision agriculture techniques uh, what uh, uh, can be done better 
Yes. So if we if we then uh, come to the present day, yes, we have a planet that is somewhat under pressure from our current food production systems. We have the runoff. We also have the, for example, clearing of rainforests is a classic uh, factor often brought up by environmentalists uh, that we're clearing these fields in order to uh, have beef cows uh, walking around there making hamburgers for us. We also know for a fact that our current food production systems are not efficient uh, in the sense that there are enormous amounts of food that are uh, discarded for various reasons in all the different stages of the production process. So some stuff never leaves the fields, some never end up in the stores, some never come to people's homes, and a lot of food that end up in people's homes are anyway rejected and not eaten. So potentially with uh, smarter logistics, better uh, ma uh, resource management system using artificial or big data-driven systems, we can optimize the resource distribution of food uh, on our planet and reduce food waste. And I think that uh, in itself would be a, a, an enormous win made within the, the current paradigms of the system. And then if we, on top of that, add these novel technologies that I would love to explore with you now, David, um, the aquaponics, the, um, the micromanaged uh, farming, where you control exactly how much nutrient and light that goes into every plant. This, of course, was not, was not possible before, but with the uh, availability of very cheap sensors and control systems, we can now run very efficient farming systems in any location. And we don't even need to have fields anymore. We can put them in urban areas or we can put them underground. And that is also a fascinating development in terms of looking at the network society effect that we want to democratize the access of food production resources. Um, the uh, evolution of, of uh, how uh, we produce and consume food in our society is, is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, a few hundred years ago, um, the likelihood that you were born a farmer and your uh, father would be a farmer and your children would be farmers was practically 100%. Um, but uh, little by little, uh, with uh, increasing urbanization and then industrialization, the number of people who uh, are dedicated to farming decreased. Uh, and uh, today, um, depending on, on uh, where you look, more or less uh, 2-3% uh, in the um, high-income countries of the population uh, creates the calories that uh, are able to feed 100% of the of the population. Uh, with uh, uh, the further changes that we mentioned, this will uh, increase uh, still. Uh, robotic uh, farming uh, is now being tested in, in, in China and elsewhere, uh, where the, the number of people that, uh, that need to uh, look after uh, a given area of uh, field growing food is even further decreased. But uh, in urban environments, uh, uh, urban farming, urban gardening, um, uh, indoor uh, farming even, is uh, increasing as well. Uh, so uh, these are going to create uh, very interesting dynamics where people who have never been farmers for generations uh, are going to be able uh, with some kind of trepidation, but also excitement uh, to 
start growing their own food. And this uh, can be extremely uh, beneficial. Of course, as you pointed out, the percentage of food and calories that uh, people uh, in urban environments are going to grow for themselves is going to be relatively small uh, with respect of the total that they need, initially at least. But what matters is the ability and the learning process uh, which will introduce them to this uh, uh, possibility. And this will progressively increase in time until the point where um, it will create a, a support infrastructure that is much more resilient, it is much more capable of satisfying the needs uh, and, and, and do them uh, uh, capable of uh, withstanding uh, crises of, of various types than not before. Excellent point. And in this setting, I would also, I mean, we are both technologists, David, and we, we are uh, always fascinated by the applications of technology. But I, I also want to discuss with you uh, an interesting social trend that is uh, clear in a lot of developing economies. And that is that large groups of young people are going for uh, vegetarian or even vegan diets. At least in Sweden, where I live, it's a very powerful trend. And uh, we have, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but uh, there are new vegetarian restaurants all over the place. It's becoming very much the norm to focus on plant-based foods. And as a food entrepreneur myself, I always uh, said that when we talk about food, we must evaluate food from three dimensions. And the three dimensions, in my view, are First of all, it's the taste and the aesthetic and the culinary experience of food, which is important. The second dimension is the nutritional value of food, what what <laughs> different it, difference it actually makes after it has passed my taste buds and enters my system. And the third dimension is what effect uh, did this the production of this particular food stuff have uh, on the planet and the planetary system. And well, uh, the challenge with vegetarian foods has uh, often been that they have not lived up to the taste experience of people who have perhaps grown up with thinking that meat is a component of, of every meal. Uh, however, when you evaluate uh, vegetarian foods from the perspective of uh, nutrition effect on the body, as well as the effect on the planetary food production systems, they really win out in the long run in terms of, of health for pe people and planet. So maybe beyond technology, there is also these quite powerful social dimensions which we can apply in order to uh, to change the habits and, and have a better functioning food system. So what's your take? I believe you are a meat eater, David. Uh, I'm an omnivore. I, I have uh, adopted a, a vegan um, uh, behavior for um, eight months uh, a few years ago. And, and for me, it was uh, wonderful, uh, a lot of fun uh, to dedicate time to prepare a, a nutritious and uh, um, um, exciting meal. Um, and um, I also lost uh, a lot of weight, uh, which was uh, good because I am definitely uh, overweight. Uh, so so it, uh, it, was, it was a positive outcome. Uh, and um, I, I, I snapped out of it, uh, uh, unfortunately, 
uh, on one hand, because my wife uh, really didn't like uh, that uh, I wouldn't eat what everybody else in the family ate, and she likes to cook, and 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 so that was uh, uh, an issue. But uh, I was visiting Japan, uh, and uh, uh, we had um, you know uh, reception dinners uh, with uh, uh, incredible uh, sushi prepared, and 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 I. Uh, didn't feel not uh, being able to, 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 to taste that at the time. Uh, but uh, I aspire uh, to, to go back, if not uh, on, a, on a completely uh, plant-based uh, diet, uh, at least uh, uh, radically reduce um, uh, meat uh, eh, or ideally, uh, balance it in a manner that uh, reduces animal suffering in my diet. Because uh, you are right, uh, the, the social and the moral component in, in, uh, in how we uh, feed ourselves is something that, that matters to more and more people. And, and luckily, uh, we can afford to do that. Um, just as during Roman times, uh, there may have been people who who uh, felt slavery was uh, immoral, but they didn't see an alternative. Uh, but uh, today we have been able to make slavery illegal uh, because uh, it has been uh, universally um, recognized that it is uh, possible and desirable to build societies without. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, it will be something very similar uh, that is going to happen in uh, our society around uh, uh, industrial animal uh, farming and uh, and the, the the fact that we recognize that uh, a lot of the animals that we eat are are sentient to to high degrees and it is really a tragedy that uh, that we are accustomed to uh, to slaughtering them and and, and eating them yeah I, I second uh, your view there I am myself an omnivore um, by habit and upbringing and but have flirted uh, many times with veganism inspired by not least Peter singers uh, the, uh, the the philosopher and animal rights ethicist um, who argues I mean there are many dimensions of course to choosing what you eat uh, but uh, to reduce the intake of animal foods seems like a, a moral uh, valid position to to take both for uh, one's own system for the benefit of the animals uh, specifically and thirdly for the resource use of the entire ecosystem so yes uh, vegetarian veganism is certainly here to stay and i believe that it's just going to further uh, take ground and not unlikely uh, it's difficult to tell about the time, of course, but we will perhaps make that into a norm and that ultimately eating meat will be a little bit like smoking these days that, you know, it's something that people, uh, you know, look a little bit over uh, to the side if, if you do. I wanted in that setting, though, to bring up one of my pet projects, which is I, uh, a few years back, I was involved in setting up a company doing insect farming. So we were growing crickets uh, in... Uh, in uh, shipping containers and creating cricket uh, portable cricket farms and when i the deeper i got involved into that industry the more fascinated i was unfortunately in the european union it's uh, 
the legislation doesn't allow uh, us to freely produce and sell uh, insect-based foods. Some countries like Finland and the Netherlands and a couple of others have made exceptions in the national uh, legal system, allowing uh, insect farmers to sell uh, crickets and mealworms and other uh, similar products uh, openly on the market and allowing consumers to make their own decisions. And it's fascinating what you actually can achieve uh, by growing crickets instead of, for example, growing chickens, because the... uh, mm, the amount of uh, protein biomass that you can produce uh, in terms of crickets in relation to traditional poultry or pork farming is uh, higher by a factor of 10 to 100. When you look at the resource uh, use, it needs less water, it needs less energy, it needs less input. And this is because uh, a number of factors, but one of them being that insects, they breed very fast. They have very short generation cycles uh, and they multiply very, very fast. Uh, Second dimension is that they also um, can eat pretty much anything. Whereas beef cows, for example, are very picky with the diet and uh, they need a very specific diet in order to grow. Uh, The insects can eat any kind of food side stream or even gardening uh, leftovers. Uh, And thirdly, the fact that these animals are not, uh, they are metabolically cold blooded. So unlike a cow or a, a chicken that wastes a lot of the food that goes into their mouths and beaks, just uh, for making, uh, warming up their cells. The insects, uh, they don't have this problem. So they can use all the energy that goes into uh, their little mouths to grow and to reproduce. And uh, if we are going to continue eating meat uh, and have animal-based proteins, I think that insect farming is really a business for the future with a marvelous potential. And I encourage uh, any listeners to try uh, insect-based foods because they can be just as delicious as uh, any other traditional food. You can uh, use insects, uh, I mean, visually. One of my favorite dishes was to fry crickets with cinnamon and sugar and have it on top of vanilla ice cream. Uh, But you can also just grind them and put them into, for example, bread, which then tastes just like normal bread. It's just with the benefit that you actually have the ham and cheese is sort of nutritionally already included in the bread. So you don't need to put that ham and cheese on top of it because you still get a a broader nutritional spectrum with a higher protein content uh, with this insect fortified uh, bread. If, have you tried somebody, insects, yeah, if somebody wants to have a, a, a an interesting excuse to come and visit Italy, uh, they have uh, thousands or millions of reasons, of course. But an additional reason can be to visit the city of Bergamo, uh, where in the Museum of uh, Natural History, the director whom I know uh, organizes um, uh, evenings of entomophagy. Uh, evenings of of eating uh, insect-based uh, uh, food, and um, it, it is it is funny because uh, Italian uh, uh, regulations um, keep uh, insects uh, in a in a gray area. So every time he just uh, sends uh, the communication uh, to you know the health uh, organization overseeing this, <clears throat> and. Uh, they don't know what to respond, so they don't respond. And then he goes <laughs> ahead and 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 organizes these uh, fascinating dinners. And I had definitely fun uh, trying it. 
um, I am I am not alone. Uh, the United Nations, actually, uh, in its analysis of uh, humanity's uh, food sources and food supply, uh, recently made a recommendation that, uh, uh, just as uh, it is already the case in Asia and in some other places, the rest of the world also should increase, uh, possibly quite uh, uh, a large amount, uh, the uh, source of cal- calories coming from uh, insects uh, in in its uh, uh, production and and uh, and intake, um, and uh, uh, you know you mentioned uh, the the container based uh, production of of insects. So uh, this is also fascinating in in terms of how it can be uh, readily uh, productized uh, as soon as the regulatory environment uh, allows it. Uh, and uh, uh, one of our future episodes is actually going to talk about reg tech, how uh, uh, understanding uh, uh, the necessity of uh, changing policies and regulations uh, can uh, help uh, beneficial technologies accelerate and and be adopted much more rapidly than than uh, otherwise uh, could happen. Uh, so let's let's talk about uh, uh, this uh, uh, a little bit more. Um, uh, insect uh, sourced uh, protein is 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 here already available. Another uh, protein source uh, that is uh, increasing rapidly uh, in uh, in in availability and decreasing in cost is uh, cultivated meat. Cultivated meat is the uh, ability. Uh, to uh, grow uh, uh, animal protein, animal cells without the animal uh, in um, uh, nutritious uh, suspensions uh, in vats, uh, practically. And uh, the uh, sight of something like that is, is certainly unpalatable. But after the whole process, uh, it is possible to create... Uh, uh, hamburger patties or any other kind of uh, uh, unstructured uh, meat product. Uh, you cannot create a, a steak uh, as of today. And uh, it used to be that this process was very, very expensive, but uh, the cost is decreasing uh, very rapidly. And uh, uh, the amount of energy, water, soil, that is needed in order to obtain um, the uh, classical hamburger patty is reduced by 90% each or more. And of course, it is done uh, with complete elimination of uh, of animal suffering. Um, so, uh, what uh, one of once again the Netherlands is is one of the leading uh, places where this is uh, taking place. I had the chance of uh, meeting the um, uh, university professor and now CEO of uh, of uh, one of these companies uh, recently, and he expects within the next uh, three four years actually a crossover where uh, the cost per kilogram or pound of cultivated meat is going to be less than the cost of uh, uh, regular. Uh, uh, slaughtered meat, and then never, never be more expensive again. So year after year, it uh, will be ever more 
uh, available, ever more inexpensive. And, and, you know, I really expect that uh, not uh, in five years, but uh, within the next decades. That is fascinating, the uh, idea of lab-grown meat. I have dabbled myself. Some in the field, being a biohacker myself, I um, have worked together with several friends uh, working to uh, prepare facilities and see if we can uh, grow our own foods and what is needed. And there are some um, complications, unfortunately, in relation to producing uh, mammalian cells, which is, I mean, uh, for example, beef uh, muscle cells uh, in um, in large scale conditions so if if we if we pick the topic apart a little bit uh, the, the uh, opportunity to uh explore uh, uh not only uh, what it means from an entrepreneurial point of view not only what it means from uh, uh, a culinary point of view but also to understand the social uh, implications of of this industry is 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 really fascinating uh, if uh, uh, cultivated meat uh, uh, takes off, um, uh, we will have a, a, an interesting uh, conundrum. Uh, today, um, if you compare uh, the population of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, zebra uh, against cows, uh, the first uh, are much less successful than the second because uh, uh, zebra cannot be domesticated. And, and cows can, and they have been uh, very, very successful in uh, keeping up their large numbers. Uh, when, uh, on one hand, uh, uh, plant-based diets and, on the other hand, cultivated meat uh, will represent a large part of, of uh, uh, humanity's uh, food source, uh, the cow population will radically decline. And it will be the same with chickens and pigs and and uh, um, sheep. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that uh, that uh, that is the most important consideration, but it will be an interesting consequence uh, from billions of of uh, uh, individuals. It will go back uh, maybe to millions, and and I don't know. Is it going to be the case that that? Uh, uh, cows will be uh, running the, the danger of becoming extinct uh, in, in the future. We will have to think about that as well. It's a fascinating uh, thought experiment, and I think there is an ele elegant analogy, as both you and I are fond of making with history, and that is the decline in the number of horses with the introduction of uh, motorized vehicles. So uh, there was a, a big uh, drop in the number of horses which were uh, everywhere in society in the first half of, of the 20th century. We've recently seen a little comeback, but that is horses for a very different uses. So it's more of a hobby and, uh, uh, and a leisure activity. But I, I wanted to, to get a little bit into the uh, meat farming thing because the, to go straight to the point, the challenge with growing mammalian cells in vitro is simply that when you have when you grow the meat cells cells in the shape of a cow, they come with a uh, immune system. Uh, so the cow has uh, an immune system that fights off bacteria or, or infections or whatever. When you grow these meat cells, which are unfortunately very susceptible to all kinds of of diseases and infections, uh, you need to have an extremely controlled environment. 
so that there's not a single bacteria uh, or virus can get into the uh, to the growing bat, uh, because if that happens very quickly, they will contaminate uh, the um, the meat cells, and those conditions are possible to uh, maintain in uh, relatively small controlled lab settings. But if we are looking at the food production system at the scale of our current factory farming system, where we are speaking in terms of hundreds of billions of chickens and sheep and cow that uh, mankind consumes every year, uh, it will be extremely challenging. Because right now, if you grow meat in a vat, you will need to bombard it with not just keep it extremely sterile, but also bombard it with growth medium as well as uh, anti, um, uh, like penicillin and antibiotics of all different kinds. And that makes it also not ideal from an environment point of view, and it also makes it expensive to produce. So my twist uh, on the uh, grown uh, meat project is that, unfortunately, we have this image, and the meat growing project have put this image quite powerfully in our heads that... Uh, the hamburger is the goal. And I think the American, <laughs> Americans are to blame for this because for them, the hamburger is this iconic piece of food. So and actually making a steak or a hamburger is probably the most challenging thing you can attempt to do if you're going to lab grow meat. And there are many other much lower hanging fruits uh, that we should likely aim for instead of the holy grail of the hamburger. Uh, for example, um, we have the potential to grow muscle meat, uh, where you don't need, as it's, it has a much more slimy and uh, therefore a very different texture than you would ask from, from a beef or a hamburger. Uh, because lab-grown meat is pretty much slime that you then have to process to give it some kind of structure. Um, what instead uh, we uh, can do today at scale is that we can grow uh, plant-based proteins uh, in lab conditions, or we can use yeast cells to produce foodstuffs that we need. There are some wonderful examples uh, from uh, the different uh, bio in the bio accelerator projects. For example, there is a company that is called Perfect Day, and they use yeast cells to produce cow's milk. And I think that is a brilliant hack uh, where you take uh, you take genes from a, a mammal and you implant them into yeast cells. The benefit with yeast cells is that they can live uh, independently. You don't need to uh, give them very specific hormones to grow that you need to do with the uh, muscle cells. And also you don't need by far the same amount of... Uh, uh, penicillin and other uh, protections because these things have an immune system of their own to deal with infection and bacteria. So we have also Clara Foods that do, for example, egg white proteins, uh, also based on synthetic biology processes. So I think that those type of products that are not directly based on animal muscle cells are uh, will be quicker and faster and have a bigger impact on the food market uh, than ultimately the um, uh, the grown lab-grown meat. Mm. Uh, one of the consequences of all of these uh, technologies is that uh, rather than uh, current uh, uh, agricultural techniques, whose output is proportional uh, to the area uh, available, each of these 
uh, is is um, we we can organize each of these approaches uh, uh, so that its output is actually proportional to the volume uh, okay. that uh, uh, that that we can control, and and this is very important because. Um, we have much more volume available on the planet than surface. Uh, we can go down, we can go up, uh, we can build skyscrapers or we can build uh, deep caverns. Uh, uh, and as a consequence, uh, contrary to what uh, was the case uh, in, the, uh, in the 60s, uh, when uh, the um, report of the Club of Rome uh, predicted uh, widespread famine by the 80s, 20 years later, uh, which were prevented by the so-called Green Revolution, uh, the industrialization of our food process. But still, it is an open question how long we are going to be able to produce the calories needed by everybody. This uh, transformation of uh, uh, food production going into 3D is going to create uh, almost unbounded possibilities because the ultimate source of calories is the sun, is the energy that uh, that we we take from the sun, uh, and uh, going solar is uh, going to enable us to take much more energy per capita than than we have today, together with the other uh, components, uh, uh, carbon and nitrogen and uh, everything that we. Uh, that plants put together by themselves and that we will put together in these uh, three-dimensional food production and environments. So uh, from that point of view, I am very uh, optimistic that we will be able to face the challenges of giving high-quality, nutritious, uh, exciting food uh, to the 8, 9, 10 billion people that will be on the planet. True. And perhaps we should end on that optimistic note with uh, what I find a highly inspirational example. Earlier in this conversation, we talked about the Haber-Bosch process and the, at the time, quite mind-blowing idea of producing synthetic fertilizer out of the air. However, uh, today we see companies uh, working with synthetic biology and genetically modified organisms, simply allowing them uh, to absorb electricity and energy and uh, carbon dioxide from the air in order to produce uh, food for humans. There is, for example, the company Solar Foods in Finland who, um, who are developing this particular process, uh, ultimately working to make food from air. And it's fascinating the way it's done because yes, as you described, David, it means a complete decoupling of this age-old concept that in order to produce food, we need to have fields. Just like in the old days, if you wanted to have fertilizer, you have to dig it out of the ground. But if we can have this system with bioreactors that we feed with solar energy, and the only thing they need to extract from the world around them is carbon dioxide, then we truly achieve this decoupling that we can produce food as you say, high in skyscrapers in the middle of the desert where there is plenty of air and plenty of uh, sunshine, or why not in deep mines underground so that we can uh, make these farm fields that are now covering so much of the world 
back into something else and we can let the wild animals roam free or we can make them into parking lots or whatever we fancy. But ultimately, we will not need to have all these fields in order to produce food for ourselves. Hopefully and not farming, uh, parking lots. <laughs> but, uh, yes. Uh, it, I, I, like far, I like fields better than parking lots. But When we let uh, nature take over, actually it very uh, rapidly recovers. Uh, it is uh, amazing that uh, uh, Chernobyl, uh, these days uh, is um, uh, extremely rich in in its uh, wild uh, natural environment, uh, and uh, the, one of the reasons is because humans uh, abandoned it. Um, also, uh, uh, Europe's uh, uh, cover of uh, forests uh, increased um, very importantly um, between ten and fifteen percent in the past uh, thirty forty years. Uh, because of uh, increased urbanization, uh, changing uh, agricultural processes. So um, something like that could happen very well in the um, uh, Amazon uh, region as well, uh, with the rich uh, natural ecosystem recovering uh, once uh, the pressure we put on it uh, diminishes. And it has the ability to, to recover uh, uh, even from very... Uh, high stress, uh, high pressure situations. So, I'm looking forward to this uh, transformation that uh, that we described, and uh, then enjoy uh, the surface of the planet uh, that can give rise to all kinds of experiences. And it is not used as uh, as uh, the industrial support system as it is as it is today. We can send uh, heavy industries out in space, food production. Uh, in skyscrapers or 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 in mines, and uh, and enjoy the surface of the planet uh, as 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 a natural uh, paradise um, to be experienced and 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 to interact with. It does sound marvelous. Yes, to I mean that we know as a fact uh, is not of a, an endless resource. The surface area of our planet is indeed a, a fixed amount of land. Um, there was, before we round off, there was a, a, a single uh, final concept I wanted to discuss with you, David. And that is that we are seeing with the development of, uh, of uh, food delivery services, uh, which is a, uh, you know, a fast-growing business, Uber Eats and many others, uh, across a number of large economies, um, we are seeing the creation of apartments that do no longer have kitchens. And I think I would love to have your network society reflection on this system because uh, what if we are seeing the end of the kitchen? Uh, I mean, back in the days, uh, every farming house, the, the family would cook their own food. But maybe we are also seeing a trend of centralization of food delivery and people really just have their homes to sleep in and they, they can order whatever they want uh, to eat. Uh, now with, with the network society uh, food distribution system built up. What is your take on this? So, so uh, different scales uh, require different types of logistics, different skills, different support infrastructures. Uh, food delivery uh, is never going to be I think, uh, something that happens uh, in a transcontinental scale. Uh, uh, if you want to eat your dinner within the next hour, 
right? Um, while uh, uh, we do transport grain from one continent uh, to uh, to the other. So I'd rather see uh, a city um, uh, enriching itself with a hundred different options uh, of uh, what uh, uh, dinner to order uh, in a given day um, uh, in terms of ethnic backgrounds, if in terms of uh, styles of preparation uh, and, 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 and in many other ways. Um, we, we, we do um, love to think about the way our mothers cooked and we, we think uh, about it uh, in, a, in a very nostalgic manner. But uh, cooking uh, uh, every day is, is a chore uh, and um, freeing up uh, human uh, potential to do other things or cook if you choose to do so. Actually, there are services that uh, deliver you not uh, ready-made uh, meals, but meals ready to be cooked. Uh, but prepared in a manner that even somebody who is not uh, extremely skilled is going to be able to prepare it. These are all options that enrich uh, our choices, gives, uh, give us uh, new degrees of, uh, of, of freedom in order to experiment, experience, uh, and, and express uh, uh, our potential. So I, I, I see it uh, as, as, as very positive. Also, uh, uh, the, the the quality and our expectations of what we can expect from 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 food and and nutrition uh, is going to be enhanced uh, uh, by this by the competition of uh, of, of different services. In terms of uh, how we organize uh, our our lives, how the traditional concept of uh, of our dwelling uh, changes. Yes, it it is going to be absolutely fascinating. If you think about it, many many. Uh, kitchens, uh, the vast majority of the kitchens still uh, in a modern urban environment uh, uh, uses uh, gas uh, to cook. Uh, electricity is, is, is increasing, but still um, uh, laying down the gas pipes uh, is um, something that, that every apartment uh, needs and every building uh, receives. So uh, if we think about the possibility of, of uh, uh, um, moving uh, away from uh, individual uh, cooking, which would be on, on, on gas, this will uh, also free up uh, uh, the way that we design, uh, we uh, build, and, and, and we experience uh, living conditions. And the flexibility that this uh, gives is, is something that uh, that we should uh, we should cherish. Once again, only if uh, um, regulators wake up uh, to the possibilities. Uh, I, I I was heartbroken uh, just a few months ago when once again uh, the San Francisco uh, uh, regulators rejected the the possibility of creating smaller uh, housing units uh, that. Uh, basically keep San Francisco uh, in the past and 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 uh, they distort uh, the housing market. One of the big reasons for how expensive it is to live in San Francisco, inaffordable for most, uh, is because of this um, uh, regulatory uh, shackle that is on the market that cannot express itself. So I am all for experimentation uh, in the ways we live, uh, in the food we eat, uh, and uh, in the next uh, few episodes of, uh, uh, of our 
podcast. We will be exploring uh, uh, more of this. Uh, I thank you, Hannes, for uh, today's uh, conversation. Uh, very interesting and stimulating, and all as always. And I'm uh, looking forward to uh, the episodes that we'll be uh, recording next. Thank you so much, David. It's always a pleasure.